If you didn't get a handout, they're on the back table. Uh, who still needs one? Anybody still need one? Okay. Thanks, guys. Um, so, hymns of praise. Uh, hymns of praise. Habits of grace, which kind of sounds similar to hymns of praise. Uh, chapter 10 is what we're going to be looking at this morning. I did think it was both providential and ironic that we're doing the chapter on fasting with the potluck this afternoon. But we'll talk about that. What's that? Right, 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 right. He starts out by saying this, Fasting is, has fallen on hard times, at least it seems, among our overstuffed bellies in the American church. I speak as one of the well-fed. And then the second part of that quote from page 117 at the top of your sheet, The dangers of asceticism are great, surpassed only by those of overindulgence. So, Really quickly, I think it's helpful for us to understand what both those words are talking about. What is asceticism? Okay. Think monks who, uh, like Martin Luther, went out into the cold for long stretches, didn't eat for long periods of time, um, denied themselves the benefits and enjoyment of marriage, all of these other sorts of things. That was asceticism. Uh, there are those who preached asceticism in the early church, and various epistles condemn this sort of idea. That says, if you deny yourself any kind of worldly pleasure, you will be holy before God. If you isolate yourself from people around you, if you deny yourself all the enjoyments of life, you can be holy. What are the flaws with that line of thinking? Okay, yeah, if you completely cut yourself off from the world around you, you can't be a testimony for Christ. What else? Does that work? Sandra? Okay, okay. But to, the, to their core point, can that make you holy? Why not? Okay. Where does the problem lie? Okay, and to, that's the important point that we need to clarify, because flesh does not equal physical body. If you make the error that says the flesh is the physical body then the path to removing sin is to almost develop a hatred towards your physical form. That's the error of Gnosticism. Spirit is good, flesh is bad, which led to the heresy that said that Jesus, or coincided, I should say, I'm trying to remember the chronology, um, coincided with the heresy that said Jesus was not actually a man, because if he was a man, he would have taken on human flesh, as in a physical body, and that would have made him automatically sinful because the body is the place where sin resides. The New Testament would teach us something different. The body is not the place where sin resides. The body is the tool which we use to carry out sinful desires and thoughts and words and all of these other things that arise from within our heart, the inmost part of us, our spiritual being, all of those sorts of things. So, the error, the heresy, the danger of asceticism is to say, 
if I deny my body the things that it wants, I will be holy. Which first of all denies that God made something good when he gave us physical bodies. It ignores the fact that sin comes from far deeper within than just our hands and our feet and our eyes and our mouths. And it most importantly denies the fact that holiness can only be achieved by something external to ourselves. That is to say, Jesus is the only way for us to be holy. We could starve ourselves to death. We could um, never give in to any kind of physical pleasure, whatever that might be, and we would still be condemned to hell, lost in sin apart from the work of Christ. So asceticism is dangerous. The danger on... And just a, a pause there for just a second. There is a strong strain of asceticism in fundamentalism, independent Baptists, all of those sorts of things. So this is something that we need to guard ourselves against. The idea that if I wear the right clothes, avoid all everything that is connected at all with the world, you know, all of those sorts of things, I will be holy before God. Worldliness is far more about what's going on in your heart than it is about what you look like. So it's important for us to remember, because if someone comes into our assembly, and this might be some of you, I don't know, but if, if someone came into our assembly and... Um, and they had um, things that in Baptist Christianity were associated with worldliness because people made the mistake of thinking it was solely about the physical body and external appearance. Let's talk about some of those things for just a moment. Yeah. Is a tattoo automatically sinful? No. Is having a beard or a mustache sinful? Is shaving your head sinful? <laughs> um, is women wearing pants sinful? Is women wearing pants sinful? <laughs> no. You cannot say that something like that... You may be convinced in your conscience that you should not. But there is nothing in Scripture that says that it is sinful. Okay? So let's keep pushing the envelope a little bit further. Is it, um, is it automatically sinful for a, a Christian to use marijuana? No. There's probably something to be said that if you're doing it strictly recreationally, that it's wrong for reasons that are connected with why a lot of things that we do are self-indulgent and can be wrong. But there are medicinal uses for things like, perhaps not marijuana, but the extracts of it. There are medicinal uses for alcohol, although using it for entertainment purposes is unwise and leads to sin probably for a lot of people. We think that because our tradition is stay within these boundaries and God is happy with you, 
we think that God will accept us and we will be more holy if we don't do certain things. Ironically, we run to the same extreme in the other ditch. We're having a potluck after the service, right? Why? Yeah. A potluck is not sinful. Gluttony is. Um, I remember there was a fellow that came to my parents' church when I was in college, wanted to be taken on as a missionary, and he probably weighed five, six hundred pounds. Perhaps there was some underlying medical condition that I didn't know about. But it is difficult to be a testimony for God and be in that condition without a good reason for it and expect other people to support you. Because there's always going to be that question in your mind, if you overindulge in this way, what other ways are you overindulging? And it undermines your ability for all those sorts of things. And I will freely admit that I could lose some weight. So I'm not just pointing fingers at everybody, and sometimes there's things that interfere with that. I get that. I'm not, I'm not trying to guilt anybody here. I'm saying there are obvious extremes of overindulgence. Overindulgence doesn't just have to be how much you eat. Overindulgence could be how much you spend on shopping, how avidly you pursue your interests, all those sorts of things. And it is a temptation that is in all of our hearts. The reason that I'm spending so much time on the front end before we go into the subject of fasting is because there are people who will basically say, if you fast, God is happier with you, and you're not really a good Christian if you don't do this, etc., etc., etc. And I think there's a few tensions that we need to walk through biblically and say, what does the text of Scripture say, and talk about those things. Um, but I just want to make it clear. There are two ditches. One is... If I cut myself off from everything, I will be pleasing to God. Ecclesiastes argues against that. God gave us food and drink and family and work and sleep. And if we enjoy all those things in moderation as gifts of God, not as ends in themselves, we can be blessed by them. There is the other extreme, not the asceticism, but the overindulgence that says... God really doesn't care if I love something more than Him, if my life is ruled by greed. The Pharisees were in danger of equating religious rites with holiness. The Gentiles were in danger of equating living in all sorts of greed as something that was acceptable, even pleasing to their gods. Christianity argues against both these things. Christianity says God has given us good gifts so we can't deny them. God has given us good gifts but we cannot love them more than Him. And so in the middle there we come into this discussion on fasting. Fasting is an exceptional measure designed to channel and express our desire for God and our holy discontent in a fallen world. The scriptures include many forms of fasting, personal and communal, public and private, congregational and national, regular and occasional, partial and absolute.
We can fast from good things other than food and drink as well. All right, let's talk about that for a moment. Should Christians observe Lent or similar practices? What is Lent? Okay. And just because I'm not familiar with it, what, how long of a time period is that? Okay, so 40 days, you're giving up what? Something. Okay. It always struck me as ironic, and it could just be the fact that businesses see an opportunity to try to exploit it. During Lent, most of the places downriver offer all-you-can-eat fish on Fridays. Right. So, we have the irony of saying, we're going to fast, we're going to give up something for God, but you can do all of what you want as long as it's not in the category of the thing that you've given up. Is that helpful? No. Should we give up things other than food, or could fasting extend to things other than food? Okay, we say yes. What's the biblical basis for that? Okay, give me a verse. Okay. Sander? Okay. That's true. But I'm looking for a verse that says, giving up, let's say you drink Gatorade after you exercise. I want a verse that says, Giving up, and that's not even good because that's something that we eat or drink. Um, let's say that you like some really expensive brand of shampoo for your shower. For those of you who need a shower and have hair. Um, giving that up is a sign of fasting or a practice that pleases God. Do we have any verse that would even come close to saying that? So the point I'm trying to make is this. If I say... I will give up blank that's not food or drink. At best, that is an application of a biblical principle and not what the biblical principle says. This is important because if we make a practice mandatory for people, which I'm not saying anyone is saying that, but some people would, if we make a practice mandatory, we had better have good biblical reason for doing so. So what we're going to talk about this morning Normal Christian fasting means privately and occasionally choosing to go without food, though not water, for some special period of time, whether a day or three or seven, in view of some specific spiritual purpose. Okay? So let's bring our definition in very closely and say, for purposes of what we're looking at first, we're not talking about logging off of Facebook, um, giving up carbohydrates, all those sorts of things. Because we could do those things just because we think they're good things. We could do those things for health reasons. You know, a lot of celebrities will talk about doing a, a juice cleanse or a water fast or all those sorts of things. This is not focused on health reasons. It's focused on specific spiritual purposes. This is not focused, at least initially in our discussion, on giving up anything and everything 
I'm not going to watch TV, you know, whatever. Although that might be a good resolution for us to do, I think it's at best an application of the principles that we're going to look at. So let's look at the biblical evidence for what fasting looks like. And uh, there's a bunch of examples, so we're just going to pick one, I think, from each of these, just for sake of time. Uh, someone turn to Ezra 8.23 for me, please, and who can read that? Okay, Paul, you got that? Uh, next one is going to be Acts 14.23. Who wants to do Acts 14.23? Kelly? Okay. First uh, Samuel 31.13. Uh, Eric? Uh, Jonathan, can you do Second Chronicles 20, verses 3 and 4? And then uh, Sandra, First Samuel 7 and verse 6. And then we'll pause there and come back to a few more in a moment. All right, go ahead and read Ezra if you would, please. Okay, good. Um, just to clarify, what was the matter that was going on from the context as you look there? Okay. Uh, look at verse 21. I think that'll be helpful. Okay. So Ezra and some people are traveling. There are people that hate them and want to see them dead. They're fasting and praying for God's special protection. So prayer for God's strength, prayer for God's help. All right? Uh, judges. Can you read that, please? Did I say Acts? I'm sorry. Acts 14.20. It's the same kind of idea. Go ahead. Okay, the structure on that's a little bit unclear because it puts the preceding action after the main one. But they appointed elders having prayed and fasted. So the way that that grammatically is structured appears that it's pray and fast, appoint elders, and then uh, sort of commit them to God kind of a thing. So um, in connection with seeking God's guidance, they are praying and fasting. All right? First uh, Samuel. Okay. Uh, whose bones? Just you guys remember Saul, Saul, Jonathan, and, and all of them. Okay. So in connection with grief, they fasted. All right. Second Chronicles. Sure, that'd be great. Why are they fasting there? Okay, good. First uh, Samuel seven six. Okay. Good. Um, let's see here. 
Uh, so the, uh, just glancing earlier in the chapter, the connection was with idolatry, and they're repenting of that idolatry, and so that's why they're fasting, right? Um, let's move on to 1 Kings 21. Someone want to do 1 Kings 21? Uh, Evan? Yes, go ahead, sorry. Ahab's lived a pretty wicked life up to this point, and he's not genuinely done any sort of true repentance. God basically says, your family's going to be wiped out, your wife's going to be thrown out of a window and eaten by dogs, you will be destroyed. In response to this, Ahab humbles himself, and do you think he was genuinely repenting? What would be a sign that he was genuinely repenting? Look at verse 29. Okay. So that would have been one of the external signs, but how would we know? Evan, what do you think? Verse 29. God delays his punishment, right? So I think God accepted Ahab's repentance as genuine. So we're like, why would Ahab be an example that we bring up? Because in this instance, he did finally at the end of his life genuinely repent. He still died. Because that's what God had said, but um, the rest of the disaster didn't happen until after his death. And then expressing concern for the work of God. Um, I think that's supposed to be Nehemiah 1, 3, and 4. I think the hyphen's in the wrong spot there. Uh, someone want to read Nehemiah 1, 3, and 4? Retta? Yes, please. Okay, no problem. Okay. Why was Nehemiah fasting? In what context? What was the news that came to him of the state of the people in the land in Israel? Right, and he hears that the temple is destroyed, the walls broken down. So there's this desire that here's God's covenant people, and these basic symbols of their relationship with God are in utter disrepair, and they're being continually defeated by their enemies, all those sorts of things. And so I think that's why he would say that it's expressing concern for the work of God. How are they possibly going to be an example for God? when the temple and all these other sorts of things through which they were supposed to be an example and minister to the nations wasn't even, was destroyed. Um, the other um, passages, kind of subsets of that, ministering to the needs of others. Uh, let me flip there and read that one for us. 
Isaiah 58, verses 3 through 7. Why have we fasted and you do not see? Why have we humbled ourselves, ourselves and you do not notice? Behold, on the day of your fast you find your desire and drive hard all your workers. Behold, you fast for contention and strife and a strike with a wicked heart. A wicked fist, you do not fast like you do today to make your voices heard on high. Is it a fast like this which I choose, a day for a man to humble himself? Is it for bowing one's head like a reed and for spreading out sackcloth and ashes as a bed? Will you call this a fast, even an acceptable day to the Lord? Is this not the fast which I choose, to loosen the bonds of wickedness, to undo the bands of the yoke, and to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? Is it not to divide your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into the house, when you see the naked, to cover him and to hide, not to hide yourself from your own flesh. This passage is complicated because he's not primarily talking about fasting. He's condemning their outward hypocritical practice of fasting while the, their actions indicate they don't really love God at all. So the Israelites were supposed to be concerned about the poor and needy among themselves. They were supposed to um, not treat their fellow Israelites in indefinite slavery, all of those sorts of things. And God says, you come before me and you're doing all the right things. You're bowing your head, you're putting on the outward garments, all of those sorts of things. And your brother is still a slave, even though the time for him going free has come and gone. This widow and this orphan are starving over here, even though I said, look after them in the land, all those sorts of things. So, um, this is kind of like a negative example and I don't think that he's saying all of those activities replace fasting, but along the same lines of offering sacrifices. God's not going to accept the sacrifice of someone whose heart is not in it and whose actions make that outward ritual empty and pointless. And so in that context, um, it's kind of like when Jesus condemns the Pharisees for all the things that they do outwardly the Israelites are being condemned by Isaiah. Matthew 4 is a familiar passage. Jesus goes out in the wilderness to fast and to pray. Uh, he's tempted. He overcomes that temptation. And then the last thing, expressing love and worship to God. So, uh, end of Luke chapter 2. Not the end, the beginning there. Um, Make sure I got the reference right on that here. Oh, okay, it is supposed to be 237. Uh, this was about Anna... Luke 2, 37, Anna the prophetess, she never left the temple serving night and day with fastings and prayers. So she was expressing love and worship to God in that way. All right. The next quote at the top of the, the page there. While the potential purposes are many, it is the last one which may be most helpful and encompasses all the others and gets at the essence of what makes fasting such a mighty means of grace. On that page, it also says, Jesus clearly assumes that we will fast. So the main purpose is to express love and worship to God, and that's the thing that all the other ones can fall under. He says Jesus clearly assumes that we'll fast, so let's look at the passages that would lead him to say that. 
Uh, let's all turn to Matthew chapter 6, first of all. Matthew chapter 6, verse 16. Whenever you fast, do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do, for they neglect their appearance, so they will be noticed by men when they are fasting. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, so that your fasting will not be noticed by men, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Okay? Um... Jesus assumes that we will fast. Is that statement true? Are there any objections or questions we should ask about that statement? Okay, that's the question that I think we ought to think about for a minute. Because if you look at the text, verse 2 of chapter 6, when you give to the poor, verse 5 of chapter, five, uh, of chapter 6, when you pray, um, verse 16, whenever you fast. And I think that's all of the... Yeah, I think those are the ones that are parallel examples. So, if we say, when you fast applies to us today, then we also have to say, when you give to the poor applies to us today, and when you pray gives to us, it applies to us today. I don't think we'd have any issue with when you pray. We have a little bit of tension with when you fast because it's an unfamiliar thing to us. And the when you give to the poor, I think we have to say, what does that mean? This was something that was regularly practiced by the Israelites as a sign of their dedication to God. Giving alms, giving to the poor. Uh, we don't have time to go into all that subject entirely. We would also have to set that alongside Jesus' statement things like the poor you always have with you. So we're not giving to the poor to a... Uh, we would not be giving to the poor with the idea that poverty will go away until Jesus comes back. We would not be giving to the poor as more important than spreading the gospel. I think that that's something that we should take a long, hard look at. But I don't think that we can say that it is binding on the church in the way that it was binding on the... Um, Israelites. That said, look at the example of the early church. They prayed, they gave to the poor among their number, and they fasted, which we'll get to in just a moment. So the question when we come to any passage should be, who is it addressing, and does it apply to us today by direct command, or by principle, or merely by application? So that's the first thing that I want us to think about. The second one is, turn over a couple of pages to Matthew 9. And look at verses 14 to 15. Then the disciples of John came to him, asking, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, The attendants of the bridegroom cannot mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them, can they? But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. What does that mean then? What is he saying? Okay. Okay. 
So they didn't necessarily have to do it while they were there with Jesus, seeing him every day, but there was potentially a place for doing it when he was gone. Now, to put it in context, he's talking specifically about the twelve, okay? But I think by extension, it can go further out from that. All right, let's look at the example of the early church. Turn over to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 9 and verse 9. Why does, uh, why does Paul fast according to these verses, or uh, this verse? Rather, it just states that, what's it doing? Okay. Sure. Okay. Was, was Saul's, Paul's fasting potentially a sign of repentance? Yeah, okay. Turn over now to Acts chapter 13 and verse 2. While they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called you. God's call for the church to set aside the first missionaries came in the context of their earnestly seeking God. I think it would be an accurate way to put it. And then just one chapter over, chapter 14, and verse 23 was one that we read earlier. When they appointed elders for them in every church, having prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Um, I'm trying to remember if there's any other examples of fasting in the book of Acts. It could potentially be argued that while they're on the ship uh, going to Rome, Paul seeks the Lord in fasting because it doesn't speak about them taking food until they'd been on the ship for almost two weeks being driven around by the storm. That would be kind of an assumption rather than a, uh, a very clear statement. Um, so we do see some evidence of it in the early church. The example of Paul, was his somewhat a unique, uh, a unique situation, potentially, yeah. was the circumstance of um, the first missionaries being sent out and the elders being appointed also somewhat of a significant circumstance, kind of a unique thing, yes? So, I think we would have to say, at the very least, if we say fasting is for today, we would have to say that fasting looks different than it did for the Israelites, for a couple of reasons. First of all, the Israelites did it um, because in some places it was required of them by the law, and if we do it, it would not be necessarily because we are bound by the law to do it, but rather because we desire to do it, we could say that we would do it freely. And we'll talk more about that in just a moment. Um, the repentance would not be primarily oriented toward a national repentance in the sense of having an idea that we are God's chosen people and therefore we are fasting so that God would forgive us as God's chosen people. Sometimes people have said, America is a Christian nation, let's fast and pray, and God will bring repentance to our nation. I don't think that we can grasp that as being a specific promise of God in the way that the Israelites did. That's what I'm cautioning us against. 
I'm not saying we shouldn't do it. I'm just saying we should understand how our context is different from their context. Uh, thinking back over some of these other examples, for God's protection, God had promised to protect the Israelites so long as they were faithful to Him. Has God promised absolutely to protect people in the church? I, I mean, there's far more examples of persecution than there are of divine deliverance, right? James, John's brother, uh, is executed right before Peter escapes miraculously from prison. So those two things are set right alongside each other. And presumably the church was praying fervently for both of them. Um, so, I mean, the bottom line would be we can't look at this as like, if I just try hard enough, and if I try to bend God's arm, He's going to answer my prayer. Because then we're sort of treating it like the prophets of Baal. If I go to extremes, God pays attention to me. If I just pray confidently, God won't. But Elijah didn't do anything like fast or dance around or cut himself with a knife or anything like the prophets of Baal were doing. He just stood up and prayed confidently before God. Is fasting, though, still a good thing? It says on page 121, fasting walks arm in arm with prayer. Chances are you're among the massive number of Christians who rarely or never fast. We just never get around to doing it. Fasting is markedly countercultural in our consumerist society. That's probably the number one reason we don't do this. We live in a society that says, Everything around you, if you want it, you should be able to get it. If you get tired of it, you should be able to get something else. Um, you have fast food, you have a microwave, you can go anywhere in your car, you can get things on Amazon Prime. I mean, we live in a culture that says, have it all, have it now, have it right away. This says, I'm delaying something that I greatly desire because I believe that something else is more important here. And that's just kind of mind-blowing if we've adopted the attitudes of the world around us. So, should we fast? I think that it is, at the very least, wise for us to consider the strong weight of example of the Israelites and of the early church. I do think it's interesting that Paul in his epistles and in his description of things the church is supposed to be doing never says you should fast. Some would argue that's because he didn't have to, they were already doing it. Some would argue that, um, well, that's just an argument from silence, that doesn't prove anything. And both of those things are true, potentially. Um, I think at the very least we would say that we cannot make something like this binding on everyone the way that it was binding on the Israelites because of the context in which we are. That being said, why would we fast? And the title of this chapter is Sharpen Your Affections with Fasting. When you're hungry, it's a constant reminder of something. And fasting is an opportunity to turn that constant reminder of I want to an opportunity to turn to God and say I need or those sorts of things. Um, and I, I think that phrase that says we don't have to get it all here and now because we have a promise that we will have it in the age to come, I think that that probably very well summarizes the point of why we would fast today. 
to take an opportunity to pause, to potentially interrupt our tendency to greed and self-indulgence and all of those sorts of things to say, God, I'm turning to you and I'm turning to you in a focused way. But this could be done poorly, so here are six suggestions briefly that he gives to help us if we choose to practice this. Start small. Uh, Jesus fasted in the wilderness for a long time. Um, Small goals tend to be more achievable. Large goals, when we set them and then fail to meet them, we tend to give up on them. So if we're going to do this, it would be wise to skip a meal, and not just skip a meal, because it's very easy for us to say, you know what, it saves time if I don't eat breakfast today. We would be doing it specifically so however long you would spend on that, or the time you would spend preparing it and eating it, you instead spend that chunk of time in prayer, even if it's only 5, 10, 15 minutes. Okay? Secondly, plan what you'll do instead of eating, and that's where it comes into, it's not just, I give this up so I have more time in my day, but what am I specifically going to do? I'm going to read this passage of Scripture and meditate on it. I'm going to spend this amount of time in prayer. If you don't have a plan, you're going to keep constantly thinking about there's a granola bar in the cabinet or there's eggs in the fridge or whatever, and it's going to be distracting. It's not going to accomplish the purpose it's supposed to do. Thirdly, consider how it will affect others. Um, If your wife has Sunday dinner ready, probably not the best thing to come in and be like, I'm fasting today, sorry. Because that's, that's not considered of other people. This is something where you could have a co- coordinated effort and say, here's what I'm planning to do, and I want to let you know about it ahead of time. And that's not, that's not trumpeting it in the streets. It's not like you're walking around with a billboard on you, hey, I'm fasting today, because Jesus said don't do that. But it's being considered of other people. So fourthly, try different kinds of fasting. Um, he goes into some more specifics of that. Turn back here this page. I can just read you a couple of these. Um, the typical form is personal, private, and partial, but we find a variety of forms. Consider fasting with your family or small group or your church and make it potentially a corporate time of prayer. Um, and I think that this would be, again, like very foreign to our experience. You, you regularly hear about churches having potlucks. You don't regularly hear about churches having we're going to fast and gather for prayer on this specific day. It's something to consider. I'm not saying we're going to do it tomorrow or next week, but it's something I think we should consider. Uh, Fifthly, fast from something other than food. I already made the point. I think this is at best an application, not a command. And it very easily turns to a point of pride, right? Uh, I'm doing such and such, and I've given this thing up and all that kind of thing. So be, be careful thinking about that. And then lastly, he says, don't think of white elephants. Basically, don't get distracted. Because it's very easy for us to get distracted. Uh, Just in the sake of being responsible and wise, if you have certain medical conditions, there are probably things that you should discuss with your doctor before considering something like this. Um, As a general rule, not eating food is... Well, I'm not even going to comment on that because I don't want to get myself in trouble. Um, there's research to say it probably is not going to kill you, but you should talk to your doctor about it just to be wise, is the bottom line. So, um, bottom line, we live in a society that says, 
I can have it all now, I can have as much as I want, I can have it constantly. And this is an opportunity to consider a practice that if used wisely might draw us closer to God, might be an opportunity for us to pause and correct some of the wrong emphases in our thinking that we've absorbed from our culture. All right, let's pray, and then we'll move into the service. Lord, as we look at these things, I pray that you'd help us to have wisdom, to see the, the purpose of these things, to draw closer to you, not to, um, not to boast, not to be hypocritical, not to... Um, feel that we are better than other people. Not to think that somehow if we get all the boxes checked off right, you are obligated to do exactly what we want when we want. Rather, considering these things, Lord, is just another opportunity for us to humble ourselves and to pray before you, to recognize that you are the source of all good things, to recognize that we should not love the benefits of this world too much. Lord, we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.